Hi everyone, welcome to Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Seen and Heard podcast. This is our first one for 2019. I'm Aaron Meikle, your host today, and we'll, uh, we've got a special guest today. It's a topic that's come up a lot in farmer feedback for us, um, and I think I know the reason why. It's, it's biosecurity. It's a, it's a hot topic for a lot of farmers at the moment. Uh, I think the last couple of years have been a real sea change for New Zealand agriculture. There's still a focus on productivity and profitability, uh, even though I think you know we get a bit of feedback for some productivity at least as a bit of a diminishing response curve. We've pushed lambing percentages and lamb growth rates right up there and incremental gains are becoming harder and harder to get. Um, but these key issues have been joined by the importance of retaining what's known as our social license to operate. And of course there's been a lot of uh, focus on environmental impact of farming. And we've also had, I think, what for a lot of farmers feels like our first significant biosecurity incursion. And when I say feels like, because we might touch on this later, there actually are a large number of significant biosecurity pests out there already endemic, weeds and pests and diseases. But um, it's just that Mycoplasma bovis, I guess, was something novel and particularly for dairy farmers or those working with dairy farmers, a real challenge and a productivity um, issue. So Mbovis is, is the key reason for this podcast, I think, but it's, it's not going to be about the Mbovis. We've already covered that a couple of times, so I encourage you to go and have a listen to those interviews, to those earlier podcasts, if you haven't already. But good biosecurity practice generally should just be part of business as usual on your farm. And so to have a talk about what that means and how to do it and what the key bits are, I'm joined today by Will Halliday. So Will's, um, and I'll get this title right, I wrote it down, Senior Advisor for Biosecurity and Animal Welfare for Beef and Lamb New Zealand. So welcome, Will. Um, you've actually only arrived here in December. What are you here to do? What's that role actually mean? <laughs> I'm still figuring it out, actually, Aaron. But now I'm uh, working in the advocacy and policy team, and, um, and really the clue is in the title, Biosecurity and Animal Welfare. We have... Um, upcoming and, and new animal welfare regulations, which I'll be working with, but um, a huge part of my job is going to be this biosecurity, on-farm biosecurity and working in the Envovis space. Brilliant. And animal welfare actually is one of the, certainly on the to-do list for 2019, so I may be, back to, may be back to talk to you for another podcast. But So, well, why are you the right person for the job? How, what, did you, what was your background and, and how did you end up? Yeah, cool. So I grew up on a sheep and beef farm in uh, Hawke's Bay, a place called Partoka, and uh, I've actually worked uh, on on sheep and beef farms, dairy farms, both in New Zealand and in Britain. Um, I'm also a qualified veterinarian. I had six years in practice in Gisborne on sheep and beef farms, and I worked uh, in MPI in the meatwork space for three years. So I've just joined the team here at Beef and Lamb. Okay. And in that role at uh, MPI, and I guess you know, as a vet as well, you've, you've been out talking to farmers about biosecurity? A little bit, yep. 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 Um, mainly I was uh, in the meatworks, <laughs> yep. um, actually checking out animals um, yep. for, for that kind of purpose. Um, but now that I'm with Beef and Lamb, this is uh, really something I want to get stuck into. So the title I'm going to steal for this podcast, and it's one you've used for your presentation, is Protecting Your Patch. And We've had a bit of a joke, um, all organisations, but Beef and Lamb New Zealand especially like their TLAs, their three-letter acronyms, so there's another one, protecting your patch. Um, that's a good summary in a nutshell, I guess, but set the scene. When we talk about biosecurity, when we say that word biosecurity, what are we talking about? I think sometimes 
people have a fairly narrow definition. But That's actually, a, a very good question, Aaron. I mean, you ask the average person on the street and they'll just say, oh, biosecurity, that's beagles at the airport or, mm-hmm. or you know, people taking away your bananas or whatever. But um, when it comes to farming, um, you, know, you ask farmers what's biosecurity and they think, oh, well, that's keeping foot and mouth disease away mm-hmm. or, or that's yep. keeping mycoplasma off my farm. But what I want to say is it, it's, actually, it's a lot more than that. There are already diseases in New Zealand that mm-hmm. you want to keep off your farm. You know, think about... BVD, think about facial eczema, um, think about you know, drench resistance and, and parasites. You know, these are all things you need to keep off your farm if you, if you possibly can. So I've sort of come up with a, a general approach to biosecurity that uh, I'd like to talk about. Yep, good as gold. Now look, I, I know we did some workshops around Embovis and they had a bit of a list of just the, the common or garden biosecurity threats, you know, for, for people, yonis, TB, um, Ovis, sheep measles, things like that, which people sort of, I, I think, overlook in the whole subject. And there was probably 40 or 50 that are already arguably endemic in New Zealand that are they're just part of good management practice, and, and that's what we're talking about. So I think the other thing, too, people tend to think about their animals and diseases, but when we're talking biosecurity, we're weeds and pests and lurgs and, and human health, zoonoses, things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. There are, there are diseases out there that, uh, you know, your kids are going to pick up from your calves or, or from your lambs, you know. So, yeah, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, and I think um, it's interesting, as you say, biosecurity. People think the wee dogs at the airport and all that sort of stuff. They've come through and getting uh, patted down by the, the friendly um, our MPI staff, aren't they? They're, yes, they are. They're, yep. they're at the airports. But um, what we're going to probably talk about today is that old saying: "Think globally and act locally." That um, what people can actually do in their own backyard, their own farm, their own region. Absolutely, those people at the airport. You know, they're the first line of defence. But um, really, when it comes to your farm gate, that's the last line of defence. Yep. So what I'm going to do, Beef and Lamb actually have quite a number of biosecurity resources, which have obviously become a lot more popular in the last year or two for, for an obvious reason or obvious reasons. So I'm going to talk through those, and I know you've got your own view on some of these things or your own experience and background. We'll, we'll expand on those as we go. Basically, Beef and Lamb New Zealand encourage all farmers to take biosecurity seriously on their own patch, not rely just on border controls, because as we've seen, sometimes they're, they're imperfect or, or um, there are a number of things already here that we have to deal with. But our biosecurity guidelines deal with basically seven intervention points. And we're going to work through those today, and as we go, we'll, we'll wander back and forth and expand on them. They are livestock movements, animal health management, people and equipment, feed and water, animal waste and carcass management, shared knowledge and understanding and pest control and I'm going to start off with a couple of these Will but um, feel free to take us sideways backwards as we go around but the first one I took out of that because we tend to think of animals or seeds but all this stuff ultimately starts with people people are managing land manage animals so shared knowledge and understanding is is the first one Um, give us your thoughts on that one what are we talking about is that just having a plan putting it up on the board or or how, how are we Getting people involved, actually, to, to take you know staff, farm managers, other farmers, your, your neighbours, to take this stuff seriously. Sure, I think um, a, a key message there is to get everybody on your farm involved in mm-hmm. it. You know, let them know um, what biosecurity is and what it means to you. Do your homework. You know, think about how uh, anything gets onto your farm and how anything gets off your farm. And it's not just animals; it's people. It's mm-hmm. It's um, you know the recreational hunters or yep. or horse riders hunt club mm-hmm. you know whoever might come in through your gate and potentially be depositing yep. uh, things on your farm so um, 
keeping an eye on your on your boundary fences and things mm-hmm. like that is a good one. And make it make it something that that's part of your farm routine. You know, a monthly yeah. task for someone mm-hmm. rather than just you know a chore that has to be done. Yeah, yeah. Because we've seen this in farm safety, land and environment planning, and I think biosecurity is the same. But doing the plan ultimately is the easy bit. We've got uh, a biosecurity warrant of fitness, we call it, which is a, a step by step process for people to work through, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll put the link to that in the description. That's a really good guide, but when those bits of paper get ticked and then put on the shelf and acrylic dust, that's where things break down. It's about becoming a process. But who are the, so your farm owners, farm managers, farm staff, we want them all involved, but who can help them? Who are the, the professionals that are, you know, is it just your vet or are there MPI people who are able to help? Oh, without doubt, without doubt, your vet is, is yep. your number one um, go-to person for animal health advice mm-hmm. uh, anywhere. Um, beef and lamb extension managers, um, really good at this kind of mm-hmm. stuff and we're actually going to be starting some uh, uh, biosecurity roadshow this year yep. that we're going to be uh, rolling out across the country yep. so um, yeah there's, there's plenty of people out there to talk to yeah yep. and get involved no so those workshops are um, in development and that's actually one of Will's jobs now that he's on board to, to help us get those ready so look for one of those in your neighbourhood soon and if you don't see one ask your local extension manager to have one in your area as I said um I, just in terms of this people thing and engaging people, it's a really interesting point. Do you think we've been too complacent in New Zealand around biosecurity because we're, you know, the split ends saying about it, the tyranny of distance and we're miles from anywhere and um, lo and behold, mycoplasma vivus has still made it here and, and we're, this is a long-winded question, we've been perhaps a wee bit fortunate that it's a relatively benign lurg, there's a lot worse out there, but um, yeah, have we... Oh, I hesitate to say that we've been overly complacent, but I think with the uh, increasing number of visitors to the country, you know, a lot more people coming in than ever have been in the past. Yep. Um, and, and increasing intensification mm. of uh, certain farming types. Um, yeah, I, I suggest that maybe the um, biosecurity hasn't really remained at the forefront of our thinking mm. as, it, as it possibly should have. It hasn't really kept up. Yep. Yeah, I think your first point's probably, rather than complacent, I think we've probably thought of it as a border control issue. Exactly, you know, yeah, and, well, it's and, always been someone else's job. Yeah. But as I say, what we're trying to get people is to think globally, act locally. So mm. we're doing that with a number of things. Uh, in the environment space, um, community catchment groups are a really big thing for us to get people in a whole catchment, not just an individual farm. Uh, in your experience, or in terms of what we're, we're talking about here, is there an option, the same here for not just an individual farm, an island in and of itself, but to, to work with neighbours and engage with neighbours? And... I, I think that's actually really important. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen um, situations where, say, um, brucella ovis or brucellosis in rams um, has been a problem in an area. Um, and, and this was an area you know, surrounded by bush. There were four or five farms involved, um, and there were these rams coming out of mm-hmm. the bush, and they were infecting all of these farms. And so we really um, we, we took that head on as a, as a community approach rather yeah. than a single farm approach. So, so I think that's a great example yeah. of how that can work, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, especially in some of the things we talk later that um, have their own four legs and are no respect of fences. And I mean, even domestic stock don't respect fences all the time, as yeah, we absolutely. know. Absolutely, yeah. yeah so. um, just on that one, though, and, and you work with MPI, so you've got a bit of an insight into this, that the issue around Mbovis became also, we wanted to work together as a community, but there are also privacy laws, and, and, and there's good reason for those. Um, yeah, I mean, um, 
how big a challenge are they to how if farmers want to work on the stuff together at the same time there's a reasonable expectation of privacy neighbours don't have to tell each other what's going on I mean how do people deal with that sort of thing sure that's a really tricky question yeah. Aaron uh, <laughs> you may not have the answer but I guess it's just oh, I'd never tell anyone I have all the answers but certainly I think um, you know if, if, if your neighbour had it mm-hmm. you'd want to know yeah you know um, and, and I think there is um, maybe not a legal expectation but certainly a moral obligation yeah. I think um, yeah. at least a heads up if you've got livestock that can potentially be in contact with each other over a boundary fence um, you know let them know and mm. maybe they can talk to the event or, or at least shift their livestock yeah look and I know we lean on them a lot and, and they're sort of taking it to a night but the rural support trust who, and this is you know for a lot of day-to-day issues that it, it's not we're not going to elevate it up to them but the rural support trust uh, beef and lamb support them they've got really good people trained to deal with some of these sorts of issues when it is hard to, to mm, raise some stuff mm. other than the, the weather and the rugby and so on over the fence. Um, hey, look, moving on to the second intervention point, I've sort of rearranged the order a wee bit, but it ties in with that one because I think getting people on board is more important than a lot of the other stuff. But people and equipment movement, mm. um, particularly between farms, is is one of the key intervention points. I mean, just how big a risk is that of contractors' equipment or contractors, mm. service providers coming onto your farm? I mean... Uh, we run field days, and yes. so we've got a hundred farmers coming onto one individual farm. Uh, is that something people really should be worried about? They should be sterilising them, scrubbing them down, disinfecting. What are we? What are we talking? Well, I don't think we need to absolutely sterilise every piece of equipment and every pair of shoes, but certainly, uh, if anything, that uh, the foot and mouth outbreak in the UK has taught us is, is that you know mud that sticks in tyre treads or in, in the soles of your boots that can actually transmit disease. Um, and things like Yoni's disease can be spread that way. Okay. So, um, so yeah, it would be a, a pretty good standard practice if you're going to a, a beef and lamb mm-hmm. field day, for example, and you're taking your four-wheeler, just give it a hose down, mm-hmm. you know, on a concrete pad yep. before you let it back onto your own farm and, and do the hosting farmer the courtesy of, of bringing a clean, yep. uh, a clean vehicle and clean boots onto their farm as well. Yep. So it's not... Um yeah, so not sterilising, just giving things a good clean down. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and 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 then also when you've got um, service providers like you were saying, like your stock agents um, or your vet, you know, um, hopefully you've got somewhere where they can park that's mm-hmm. not actually in a paddock, um, yep. you know, right next to livestock, um, so that if there is anything on their tyres or yep. whatever. Um, you know that that it is actually isolated from your livestock and from from the rest yep. of your farm. Yeah, so that's interesting. You know, and, and the the Warren of Fitness it talks about having just a one or a limited number of access points to your farm, and and just uh, without going ridiculous, just general isolation of that access point and where people go from your your stock is enough at the it, moment for what we've got in New Zealand. Well, for generally speaking, yeah, yeah it, it's just um, isolating them, minimising that mm-hmm. risk that if if they do have anything that can yep. harm your operation, that at least it's contained to that area. Now, one of the terms I noticed in your presentation and it's elsewhere in our literature is clean and disinfect. Yes. I mean, is it both, clean and disinfect, or, or, or you just talk about cleaning the four wheelers probably enough without... Well, okay. How do you make that? What, the, what's the call? Okay, so the first thing to notice here, and it, and it really is an important... Um, piece of information is that cleaning and disinfection are two separate things. Yep. You cannot disinfect a piece of shit. 
Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you clean it, and all it becomes is a clean piece of shit. So, um, if you are going to get this stuff, yeah, you know, make your four wheeler or your boots clean. You actually mm-hmm. have to hose that stuff off, and then say, if you really are worried, dip them in a in a bin of of vircon or, or yep. disinfectant of, of some sort. Um, you know, but but dipping dirty boots in those bins isn't going to really do much. Okay, so just walk, yeah, walking off the farm through a trough of disinfectant. Yeah, it to pays to scrub them or hose yep. them off before you do that. Yeah, and you, it's not specialised equipment. You were saying a fish bin, a plastic fish bin, a scrub and brush and bunnings. That's and, all you need. Yep, yep. and the, and Vircon seems to be the um, Vircon's absolutely the gold standard. Yep. You know that that's what MPI and and, and all those guys use. Um, you know, it kills foot and mouth virus. It, it kills just about every pathogen yep. there is. Um, but most of the disinfectants, you know, soapy, detergenty mm. sort of disinfectants, things you can get from yep. your vet or from your rural supplier, um, they'll do the trick. So the likes of Vircon, or is that a trade name, or is that a? Uh, that is a trade name, but the, uh, the similar um, ones. And we don't tend to promote one or the other here on. No, I totally understand that. It's just the first one that springs yeah. to mind. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, I say, it's, it's, it's freely available from a vet or yeah, a you rural can get it from store. your vet. You should be able to get it from a rural supply yep. store. Um, they're, they're, it, it's fantastic stuff for putting into calf sheds and things like that. Yeah. Once, once you've hosed them out and scrubbed them down, scrubbed them down. Yeah. Now you yep. can't disinfect. <laughs> The, the word we don't we might have to beep out of <laughs> my apologies no no good as gold um, and I think one of the ones uh, you sort of touched on there around uh, that's for transfer of diseases and infections on but um, cleaning and, and or disinfecting is a key one around zoonoses um, human infection that's that's one of the absolutely critical points yeah yeah so um, as I was saying before with um, for example calf sheds mm-hmm. you know there, there's some um Nasty diseases, you know, calf scoury diseases that calves get that, that humans can get as well, and it's quite common to see, um, you know, kids who are helping mm-hmm. out in the calf shed, and they end up, um, you know, yep. getting getting crook themselves. And so, keeping calf, you know, that equipment and the pens um, cleaned and disinfected, but then also washing your hands afterwards mm-hmm. and keeping your own clothes and and, and boots clean and tidy. Yep. So you know, and. Um you're having wee kids around farms and everything that gets on the hand goes in the mouth straight away. But yeah. things like the uh, you know the, the hand disinfectant type yep. gels and things are they useful? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, providing, as I say, you've actually scrubbed your hands. Yeah, first. okay. You know, as long as your hands, you know, you've used hot soapy water and yep. then using those things again. And I encourage people to use them around you know your sheep yards or around you know, your killing houses, things like that. Yep. And the big one that comes up a bit. Just uh, to wrap up this final point, uh, biosecurity and people don't tend to think of it as risks to themselves as well. But mm. you know, zoonoses and diseases from animals, etc., for humans are, are a big one. Uh, leptospirosis tends to get the, and you would have been well aware of this working in the meatworks. Well aware, yeah. Um, and uh, oh, just a wee plug here: we've got a very short podcast with Matt Wyeth on on our channel. Well worth a listen. He actually caught leptospirosis. Um, and it all but killed him. So if you want to know how serious it is as a disease, have a good listen to that one. But um, picking on that one in particular, what can people do to protect themselves and their families and their staff? Number one, wash your hands. Wash your hands. You know, if you've been in the killing shed or whatever, wash your hands. If you've been lambing or calving, wash your hands. Just just simple hygienic practice. Um, Yeah.
Yep. So you don't need a bucket of Vircon or anything like that. Oh, you don't go and wash yourself in Vircon, for goodness sake. It's not very good for the skin. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. All right. Hey, look, so that's the the first two. Moving on to the third one, um, and this, as I said, not in any particular order, but this will be the big one that people think of first, livestock movement. Mm. Um, What are the critical points? What are the key issues here? Well, where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do your homework. Yeah, you know, know where these livestock are coming from. If you're bringing on stock onto your mm-hmm. farm, know where they're coming from and and ask about them. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not just talking about breeding values and mm-hmm. the hundred day live weight gains, all, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that stuff is important, but ask whether they've been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You know, um, are they facial eczema tolerant? Have they been drenched or dipped in the last month? Um, you know, the, the things like that. Just mm. it, it gives you a picture of what diseases they potentially could mm-hmm. be uh, bringing onto your farm, and, and what things they could potentially be susceptible mm-hmm. once they arrive. Yep. Now, as a purchaser of stock, you, you you purchase the stock, you have some rights to them, but mm. uh, legally, that you don't actually have rights to that sort of information, do you? I mean, we're relying on goodwill here, or if if it, yeah, yeah. yeah um, I mean, you can always ask, yep. and and certainly if you're buying um, stud stock, you know, mm-hmm. bulls or rams, um, that information should yep. be available, or at least the the the, uh, the breeder should be able to mm-hmm. tell you. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a something to be aware of if if you can't get that information. Yeah, then um, yeah, maybe it's another thing to colour into your so, something to think yeah. about. But you know, if if, if if um if it's good enough for for them to say C ten, yep. you know, then it's uh, it should be yep. good enough for them to, to tell you that. So I well and on that one and to, and Nate's obviously the big one that um, absolutely that's, come under stress. That's but, that's um, the next point is to record all your movements. Yeah. You know, but part of the reason I think we've had some issues with Nate has also been stock purchases not been demanding enough of animals. So this is you can ask about certain things what they've been exposed to, but you have a right to. All the Nate records should be up to date and correct when you're purchasing stock. Yeah, yeah, they 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 should be, and and that, like you say, it has put a bit of strain on the system mm-hmm. um, with um, what what are called broken chains. Yeah, of of livestock traceability. Yeah. So on that one, obviously, um, we've got sheep and beef farmers, and sheep aren't part of Nate. Just generally, I mean, how do we trace movements of sheep because they're obviously transfer um, maybe not in bovis but the the biggie foot and mouth mm, 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 mm. what happens there so uh, the traceability of sheep is um is dealt with really on a flock mm-hmm. level um through the animal status declaration yep. the, the asd form mm. so whenever there is a change of ownership or a mm-hmm. change of person in charge mm-hmm. of these animals um, an asd form needs to be filled yep. out okay so and that includes going to the works but mm-hmm. it also includes to and from sale yards or, or even private sales. And now that ASD, the Animal Status Declaration, and we'll, we'll touch a wee bit on EASD, which is another acronym that's out there now, but that is a legal requirement. The, the, you can demand that. That's it is a legal requirement and you should demand it if it's yep. not provided, um, and it is a legal document. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, people talk about the NATE system and NATE as an organisation and Osprey and all these sorts of things and, and ASD. But again, a lot of this comes down to thinking globally and acting locally. It's mm. individuals doing the transaction, and, and uh, you know there is an onus on individuals to 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 make sure this stuff happens. It's it's the system. It's there, but people don't use it. It's not going to work. So we naturally again think about buying and selling or stop going to the works. But one of the interesting things, certainly in Bovis, and to be fair, I've been in the industry for a while and it hadn't really come to me. Is about movement within a farm. 
Mm. Um, and that can be not as significant, but a, a significant issue. Um, what can people do there? Because that's pretty hard to, to you know, um, good paddock records. What do you know from MPI's point of view, what actually would hold weight if you're trying to show that two mobs have not come within contact with each other? Sure, okay. That That is a tricky one and um, certainly not something that's widespread mm. you know, or done, done in a widespread way. But yeah, if you do have some sort of system, whether it's on paper, whether it's an online yep. or, or, or even just a spreadsheet system yep. um, with accurate records that say, you know, yep. mob A and flock B have actually been in separate blocks mm. or, or have always been two paddocks away from each other. Yep. Yeah. In, in, say, an outbreak situation like this, that could be really critical yep. knowledge. Yeah. I know it's just one of the things with the Bovis and particularly people taking grazing cows on in winter and we're not, you know... Um, you and I were talking about offline how hard it is to say with absolute certainty that you do not have embovis in a herd. In fact, it's it's basically impossible. It's you know highly unlikely for a lot of herds, but um, because of the testing regime and the the nature of the test, it can be very hard. And people have been in cap exactly that. Keep mobs separate. You know you may not have any risk, but there's a good chance that um, if you've got good records, one herd may be seen as infected and the other one not, and you may be able to, um, to get away with that but again no guarantees but we're supporting and I think that's actually you know it, it brings me on to another point really mm-hmm. about um, when new animals do come onto your farm mm-hmm. is quarantine mm-hmm. and how important that can yep. be um, and you know the, the various lengths of time have been bandied mm-hmm. about but 7 to 14 days seems to be mm-hmm. a, a reasonable expectation you know if you've bought a new mob of lambs or a new couple of bulls from somewhere um it, it, it's good to have a quarantine paddock where mm-hmm. they can hang out and and they can you know spread their worms about yep. or whatever um, after you've drenched them, um, and if they do come down with anything, then at least they've been isolated mm-hmm. from the rest of your operation. Yep. Yeah. So that that one paddock for seven to fourteen days. That's you know that again is a ch- or an area a quarantine yeah area. a quarantine area yeah. Yep. Um, or is it, you know, maybe one paddock for the first 24, 48 hours, but then keep them quarantined in space and time from other animals? For yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the main thing. Like you say, space and time, you know, as long as they're not within uh, nose contact mm-hmm. of, of other animals, yeah. Does that quarantine paddock itself become a risk in that if, you know, over time you buy animals in, the same paddock gets mm-hmm. used? I mean, are we talking the same paddock each time, or what's the... Um, well, pref- preferably, I yeah. think it would be. Um, certainly, yeah, most um, most diseases, I think, if you can leave that paddock fallow for a, for a little while, it should yeah. take care of that. Um, you know, quarantine has, has always been a, um, something we've tried to do in terms of stopping the spread of drench resistance yep. in worms. And so when you've got these paddocks um, that you can put new sheep into or new cattle into that they can clean out mm-hmm. you know you give them a clean out drench and they, and they drop all that um, on, onto that paddock and then you can introduce them to the rest of yep. your pasture um, safe in the knowledge mm-hmm. hopefully that they um, aren't, aren't going to be putting resistant worms onto your yep. onto your pasture. And just another plug if you want like we're, re- we're only barely it's not even the tip of the iceberg, it's the very top of the tip of the iceberg we're touching here on internal parasite management, but if you want the good oil, um, there's another podcast with Dave Lethwick I can thoroughly recommend to go and to get some of this in detail. So, so in quarantine, just the last question on that one, can be a quarantine paddock, important to have that, but also when they finally out at the farm, quarantine in time and space, don't have them mixed with the other mob perhaps for that. Yep. If you can't hold them in one paddock that whole time, but keep them away from the other flocks for 
yeah. 10, 14 days, something like that, or a week yeah. to 14 days. Yeah, if, if you possibly can. Um, and, and there are treatments that go with that as well. I mean, if you can't, if you don't know what the vaccination status is, for example, or when they were last dipped or drenched yep. or whatever, then a quarantine treatment is, mm. you know, it could really save your bacon. You know, if you don't know, dip them when they arrive. Mm. So we've talked about, and that's managing planned movements. Obviously, the big yeah. problem is unplanned movements, and you talked about it before. So fencing, boundary yeah. fences. Um, in the case of Mbovis, we've talked about an extra fence to keep that nose-to-nose separation not from happening. But um, good basic subdivision fencing is still one of our main biosecurity tools. I think so, yeah. yeah. Physical barrier. I mean, they're, they're talking about it in all parts of the world at the moment, yeah. aren't they? So... Um, <laughs> outriggers, <laughs> outriggers on your boundary fence is probably going to be your your, your fastest and most cost yep. effective, you know, immediate yep. measure that you could do. Um, more long term measures could be things like double fencing or shelter belts. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's uh, a lot of great information out there about um, planting shelter belts, mm-hmm. um, both from the Beef and Land yep. website, but also from the New Zealand Farm Forestry Association. So, um, but like I say, that that's a longer term. Um, yep. Mitigation yeah. strategy, yeah. But out, as simple as outrigger is just a... It could be as simple yeah. as an outrigger, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, look, so moving on, if I don't think there's anything else we need to... We're sort of covering, um, as I said, a lot more detail in our documents. We're covering this to give people a good general feel, but actually realise there's more to it than, than some of, I think, what people initially think about. Fourth key intervention point is, is uh, again... Talking about icebergs, animal health management. Now, there's a big topic, um, <laughs> but it's both uh, prevention as well as cure. We're talking about here. We've touched a wee bit with quarantine. Mm. Um, what's some of the? We're not going to be able to cover it all. But what's some of the key points here in animal health management? What should people be putting in place to try and address this one? Rightio. Um, yeah. Gee, this took me five. <laughs> this took me five years at Massey, <laughs> and, I, and I'm still learning. <laughs> three years at Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> um, Really, it's it's probably the best thing you can do is is get an animal health plan mm-hmm. from your vet. You yep. know, have some sort of structured plan regarding your drenching, vaccination, um, pregnancy testing, all that mm-hmm. kind of jazz. Um, and if you do find something wrong, or an mm-hmm. animal that is sick, or you have things that are dying or aborting or whatever, get your vet involved. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they do. They um, you know, you, you can investigate this, find out what it is, and hopefully stop it from happening again. Now, even in Bovis is a classic because that's um, I'm from North Otago, and um, uh, the vet who actually uh, identified it first is sometimes looks after my wife's dog, etc. Right. So I was having a yarn to her, and even sometimes the vets they'll know that something's outside of their ken. There is an 0800 number that people can ring if in doubt, or if in emergency, or if really concerned about something. Absolutely, there is. Oh, 899. Six. Hang on. <laughs> uh, no, that, that wasn't the test. I did write it down here. 0800 80 99 66, I think. That's the one. 0800 80 99 66. Who does that go to? So that goes to what a person called an incursion investigator. Mm-hmm. And that'll be in the, uh, the Wallaceville lab mm-hmm. in Upper Hutt. Um, and so they'll, you know, whoever calls that number, they'll, they'll talk to this person, they'll be run through a, uh, a checklist mm-hmm. of various things, um, and if that incursion investigator decides that, yes, this does require investigation, mm-hmm. they'll give the, the, the person on the phone advice, um, and they'll send out a person called an initial investigating veterinarian. 
and so they'll arrive on the on the property and conduct the initial investigation, and they'll decide, you know, whether it needs further looking into, mm-hmm. or whether we can just stand down and say no, it's probably just something else. Yep. And that's free, publicly available, any farmer, any time. Absolutely. Absolutely, you can call that number any time. Again, we'll stick that in the description, but 0800 80 There you go. All right. Um, and one of the other things I think, and you, and you do touch on it, is we tend to think of biosecurity as preventing things from coming in or recognising them early. But um, you make the point, breeding for resistance and tolerance, good genetic resistance or annual tolerance and the different things in your flock, in your animals, in your herd, is actually a really key biosecurity tool. Yeah, I like to think of um, biosecurity as, it, like you say, it's not just keeping things out. It is keeping our animals and our plants safe from disease, you know, safe from mm-hmm. a preventable disease. So that, like you say, it could involve, um, yeah, facial eczema yep. tolerance. It mm-hmm. would be a great example of that, yeah. Yep. Now, look, I had, um, from down south, Facial eczema is not something I've ever seen in my <laughs> farm, on our home farm or anything like that, but it got involved with it. And it was, um, you know, that's a really tricky disease, but breeding for tolerance is it's not necessarily a silver bullet, but it's a bronze bullet. It's, well, it's one of the best tools we've it, got. It, it's been shown to work. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a great way. It's, yep. n- it's never going to knock it out 100%, but um, every little bit helps, yeah. Yep. Now, look, it, we're harping on this a wee bit, but when I went through reading for this podcast, one of the key things that keep coming up is, is it's not border controls and beagles and boundary fences. Um, it is things about observation, keeping your eye on things, dealing with things, and, and prevention rather than cure, and, and not just trying to shut everything out, not um, not just build a border wall, as, as the, yeah, <laughs> the current uh, political topic is. All right, uh, moving on. Um, there's a couple of other smaller points I, I just want to cover before we get into some general chat. Um, feed and water is um, one of the seven intervention points in mm. our dry stock biosecurity lines. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on feed because I think people can understand that one, but, mm. but water? How's water a biosecurity risk in New Zealand? Well, what I would think about there is, you know, if you've got creeks that are running through your place mm-hmm. that are um, coming from a neighbouring farm yep. or going to a neighbouring farm. You know, there's always the, uh, <laughs> well, there's always the, the floodgate that doesn't mm-hmm. quite work, and so yep. it's actually a potential um, uh, way that livestock can get from property to property. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, there, there's if it's not properly fenced off, there's mm-hmm. the likelihood of um, things in the faeces that mm-hmm. can tra- travel between farms. Yeah, and also saliva, snot, yep. um, you know dead animals even can float down the river so would it be fair to say i mean there's a lot of water quality issues on farmers mind at the moment um mm. water as a biosecurity risk is relatively low or, or are you talking you know there is this is something people I, really I, need to be worried about i think it's a low risk mm. but it's a real risk yep yeah and so it, it's another reason i think why we need to be looking at fencing off these mm-hmm. these waterways yeah yeah no, it's good because it's interesting. You know, you talked before about shelter belts and double fencing on boundaries have that biosecurity benefit, and obviously they have some key issues around um, a number of environmental factors. So um, um, there's, there's some tie in with some of the stuff. It's um, they're win wins if you like. Um, but obviously, the big one people think about in this area is, is feed coming onto the farm sure. and stuff coming in with it. Now, um, identifying a disease in an animal is one thing. 
finding a weed seed and mm. supplement that's been bought on is a whole different ballpark. So, I mean, what can people realistically do in this case? I mean, is the again, is it just... Um, I think uh, it good comes information, good faith. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, like you say, it comes down to bit of good faith. Mm-hmm. Do your homework. Um, if at all possible, you can find out exactly yeah. where it's come from and and go and have a look at the paddock. Maybe. Yeah. Um, could give you an idea of what you might be bringing on. Sure. I think that actually it ties in a wee bit. Again, the interesting thing is not any system is going to be imperfect. You know, even our border control, as efficient as they are, there's going to be things happening. It comes back to um, observation and, and inquiry. Yeah, um, yep. And if you see something out of the ordinary, something yep. you've not seen before, and in all your years of experience, yep. um, yeah, so tell someone. I mean, the classic example is velvet leaf and fodder beet mm. turned up, um, and people noticed an odd-looking plant grown in their fodder beet, and, and it was consistently in in in, in fodder beet paddocks, not elsewhere. Uh, is that what that 0800 number is for as well? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it's the pest and disease hotline. Mm-hmm. So um, people ring that number up for things like your, your marmorated stink bug, mm-hmm. um, the the harlequin ladybird yep. was, was a classic that you know that's now uh, endemic in the North Island. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, your velvet leaf. You know, you've got. Oh, I don't know. There's lesser blue-throated Chinese <laughs> cuckoos, or whatever. You know, anything out of the ordinary, yep. you can ring that up. Yeah, yep. So, um, and in this day and age, take a photo on your phone. That's what they can see. Yeah, they're all set up for that. Yep. yep. Yeah. So it's just again, it's not. We want to be at the fence at the top of the cliff to use that analogy as much as possible. But sometimes it is the ambulance at the bottom, and that relies on people just. Um, Using their eyes and ears and yeah, and yeah, in touch. absolutely. I mean, another huge lesson we learned from from the UK um, the outbreak of foot and mouth disease was was how critical that early identification mm. is. You know, by the time the authorities actually understood yep. that this was foot and mouth that mm-hmm. they were dealing with, they already had sixty farms infected. Yeah. You know, so it, it travelled that quick, mm-hmm. and, and the information travelled so slowly yep. that um, that they had a major problem on their yeah. hands by the time they already knew. So, what, I mean, what's the lesson there for New Zealand farmers? Was that farmers just didn't see it over there? I mean, foot and mouth disease spreads very quickly. It, it does spread very quickly, and uh, the the farmer suspected he had it, but he mm-hmm. continued trading livestock, and he yeah, was okay. he was moving pigs around, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and it just moved all, right. you know, all the way from from Devon all the way to Scotland. Yeah, and it was something like that. I mean, there is no hiding these things. They're going to be found out sooner or later. So it's, um, yeah, the, the earlier the authorities are involved, the better. All right, um, whipping through these, animal waste and carcass management. So, I mean, there's, there's some significant issues here for dairy farmers with effluent and that sort of thing. Not so much for sheep and beef deer farmers, but, I mean, what sort of issues are there? Uh, you know, carcass management is oh, has some hygiene issues and those sort of things. Are they real biosecurity risk? Disposal of awful, you know, an awful pits that sort of thing. Well, certainly. I mean, it, it helps keep the farm yeah. <laughs> look clean and tidy. But um, but you know, if if say you don't know what actually happened to that animal, yep. why did that animal die? Why oh, okay. why yeah. is it a carcass? You know, um, you know, sheep and cattle, and probably more so cattle, are, are generally inquisitive creatures mm-hmm. and so they will go and nose and nuzzle and investigate things and um, so you know if, if that animal has died from a preventable mm-hmm. disease um, you know you, potentially it's a source of infection for us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, observation inspection again trying to work out why that animal died I guess is a rather than just 
yeah. tie it on the back of the four-wheeler and the off and get rid of it, but actually have a time to work out what happened have a bit of a look if you can and if you if you if you have a bit of knowledge and on how to do a post-mortem examination yeah yep. for sure you can uh, get your vet maybe to show you how to do it yep. <laughs> yeah um now one of the things and obviously you came out with sort of the bse issues was around ruminant proteins and not being mm. fed to other ruminants so mm. things like blood and bone now we're not allowed to use on yep. pastures that might be eaten and, and not allowed in feeds for for ruminants uh, does um is there a risk from animals die and we've got dead animals and so on? Is there any risk on farm in terms of the way we dispose of carcasses to rumen proteins getting into the food chain? That sort of thing. It's, it seems unlikely. It's just a question I've been asked once or twice. By. Right. Oh well, that's yeah. That's an interesting question. I think if you've got a dedicated space mm-hmm. or. or you know, depending on access to different yep. parts of your farm. If you have dedicated spaces for disposal of carcasses, um, then I think that should be that should be fine. Yeah, it, I mean, it seemed unlikely where compared to where they're deliberately being put into foodstuffs and fed deliberately. The exactly. Yeah. I think I think the bigger risk, uh, you know, for for the introduction of animal proteins back into livestock in New Zealand actually comes from things like uh, chook pellets. Okay. Um, you know, even even some horse food, mm-hmm. um, some bagged horse feeds actually contain uh, ruminant protein okay. in there. So uh, I'm not going to tell everyone to panic and stop buying it, but um, but just make sure you know if you if you do have horses and you're feeding them this stuff, um, feed them in their own paddock or, okay. or, or in a feed trough. And the same with the chooks. And yeah. and the chooks as well. They should be fed in their own yeah. separate area. Don't let the pet lamb get into the chook trough and eat the bloody pellets. Preferably not. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one, but these are good. The final one, before we do a bit of a wrap-up and talk about what people can do, I mean, pest control. Um, obviously, some of them are vectors, um, particularly bovine TB, um, and vector control has been a big part of the investment in, in the industry. But um, on farm, for individual farmers, I mean, how big an issue is this? Are we, what are the risks there from uh, you know pests, from big and small? Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, I mean, you touched on TB, so obviously you've got possums and feral deer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, possums, something we can go out and shoot or poison yep. or whatever. Deer may be a, a bit more of a problem. They, mm-hmm. they tend to jump fences uh, with relative yeah. ease. Um, <laughs> but certainly I think, you know, keeping the keeping the populations of those animals down um, yeah. is key. And, and thinking about places like your wool shed, um, you know, rats and mice, they're yep. great vectors for for things like leptospirosis. Okay. So yep. um, so if you can you know put down some some baits or something yep. or, or you know control them in some other manner, um, they can go a long way to um, mitigating those risks. Yeah. Mm. Slightly different for rats and mice, but I guess I'm just thinking of some of our listeners who've got their their um, Christmas venison or their venison on on the back of them. We're talking more where. Um, Things like TB are in the in the in the doors. You know, if you yeah. haven't, there's there's no nothing to be gained from that sort of pest control. So no. where where you do have that issue, we're absolutely to, to yeah. deal with it. All right, look, that's been a bit of a, a high level helicopter trip, and, and at times we've gone a wee bit sideways through, uh, as I said, the seven key intervention points that are in our dry stock guidelines that that we encourage sheep and beef and deer farmers to to work through. Um, in terms of, for a farmer who's had a listen to all of that, um, and obviously now they're highly enthused to get out and, and do their biosecurity plans, their processes to protect their pets, as you put it, um, what are the key first steps? What should they go and do tomorrow, next week, this month? What are, what are the things you would advise somebody to, to get started on? Rightio. A couple of 
easy things you can do is um, go and get a couple of fish bins, some mm-hmm. Vercon, some scrubbing brushes. You know, um, set one up, say at the wool shed, one at the cattle yards, mm-hmm. um, and then for people coming and going from those from those places, encourage them to clean and disinfect their boots yep. um, as they enter and, and, and as they leave. Um, another one, I think, if, if you do have staff, you know, have a meeting about mm-hmm. this. You know, um, you know, or, or, or add it to your your weekly or fortnightly health and safety meeting, you know, um, have, a, have a bit of a biosecurity um, update. Make sure all their dogs are uh-huh. wormed, flea, vaccinated, all that kind of thing. Um, and probably the, the next thing would just be to talk to your vet about an animal health plan and actually yep. get one off the ground. You know, a lot of people talk about it, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, yep. talk is cheap. Yep. And look, it's something that's ongoing here at Beef and Lamb. We've actually got an online uh, sheep production calendar that does a lot of the animal health management. It's due for an upgrade, but that's an ongoing process. The um, There are tools that people talk about it all the time, as you say, but don't get around it. The, the win-win with this one is not only will it help your biosecurity management, but there's obviously productivity and profitability gains to be made there in terms of good animal health management as well. And, and there are people and systems there to help. So in terms of more information from Beef and Lamb New Zealand, um, I've got a couple of key ones, and, and Will, you may have some other ideas, but there are our dry stock biosecurity guidelines. Free to download or ring us up and get a copy. We'll mail it out, no charge to you. Um, that contains the seven intervention points I've talked about. A lot more information, a lot more detail if you want to read, follow up from what we've talked about here. The summary that goes with that, we've got a biosecurity warrant of fitness, which is basically a three or four page checklist that was developed with us, Federated Farmers, MPI, uh, NZVA, the Vets Association, um, and did I mention Dairy NZ? They were in there as well. We've, we've put that together. It applies to all farms. It's a checklist. Work your way through it. Tick the boxes. It'll t- remind you of all the things we've talked about here to get it in place. And keep an eye out for our biosecurity workshops, which are, as we said, coming soon to a place near you. What have we missed? Anything else on top of those three? Oh, I think we've uh, we've covered most yeah, of everything there, Aaron. Time for a coffee. All right. Excellent. So if in doubt, if you see something you're worried about, call your vet or call MPI on that 0800 80 99 66. It's free. It's the way to get professional help on your place if you see something that's not right. But on that case, I'll leave it here. Will Halliday, Senior Advisor, Biosecurity and Animal Welfare at Beef and Land New Zealand. Look, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a pleasure.